How are believers to conduct themselves in a society that is struggling to be civil in uncertain times? Hi, this is Him We Proclaim with Dr. John Fonville. We're continuing our series called Models of Good Citizenship, and today is part one of a message called The Purpose of Modeling Good Citizenship. Scripture is clear that Christians are to model good citizenship for the purpose of facilitating the gospel. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Titus 3 for a biblical example. Here's John Fonville. We're just taking a brief look at Titus chapter 3 because because of the situation that we find ourselves in in the current uh, cultural atmosphere of our nation and trying to look at, you know, how do we as believers how, how do we live in an uncivil society? How are we to conduct ourselves? And the scriptures have many things to teach us about that. And one of the clear teachings in scripture about that, there's other places, but in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Paul is teaching us what it looks like for Christians to model good citizenship in society. And so I thought this would be helpful for us to look at. Just very quickly, we've seen that the Apostle Paul in chapter 3, he devotes his whole chapter to the believers' uh, civil or national citizenship in the country in which they live and how they're to conduct themselves within that society in, in view of unbelievers who they're living with. And his concern about that is in chapter 3, verse 8, is so that it's profitable to them, so that it wins them for Christ. It's evangelistic. It's mission-focused. That is his concern here. And so we see here that uh, Paul's emphasis in chapter 3 is on the doctrine of vocation. That's not a very uh, well-known doctrine in the evangelical church, at least, and it's one that we need to bring back that was recovered in the, the Reformation because it's actually a very freeing doctrine, and it's very good news. The, the doctrine of vocation, what is it? Because that's what we're looking at here in chapter 3, and we're going to come back to it in a moment, but what is it? The doctrine of vocation is not a teaching about the value of work, the doctrine of vocation isn't uh, teaching about one's profession or their job. It's not about vocational training for your professional job that you find yourself in. The doctrine of vocation comprises a theology of the Christian life. The doctrine of vocation is comprehensive. It involves every facet of our life on a day-to-day -day basis. It takes up the focus of our responsibilities, how we live every moment of our life, whether it be in society, in the home, in the church, workplaces, or wherever. So it's a very comprehensive theology of the Christian life. The doctrine of vocation asks this question, how are Christians to live in the world? How are Christians to live in the world? What, what does a faithful Christian life look like as faith bears fruit in good works. So the purpose of our vocation, whether, it, uh, whether it's a believer or even an unbeliever, but the purpose of the believer's vocation specifically here is it is to love and serve our neighbors in good deeds. It's to keep the second table of the law. 
the great commandment, which Christ says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And so as believers, one of the ways that we do good works and obey the the second table of the law is that we have been given uh, by God a vocation of citizenship in the civil kingdom. And so this vocation of citizenship in the civil kingdom that we live in in society requires us to love and serve our neighbors in good works. And so Paul tells us in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, what these good works are, all right? And, and here's the important thing to note is you look at these good works as how you're to model your civil citizenship in this society that you find yourself living in. There's nothing radical about it. It's quite, it's quite ordinary because often people are talking about, well, what are the things that we can do to transform society, right? That's not the mission of the church. These good works in chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, they're very ordinary. But Paul says in chapter 3, verse 8, that these good works that we're to model in verses 1 through 2 they have profound beneficial effects on our unbelieving neighbors. How we live has implications for the church's evangelistic witness. So that's, that's the context. In chapter 3, and Paul does this, he, he issues four directives, four directives to believers. All right? And, and these four directives that he gives to believers are, are how believers are to live as model citizens in an uncivil society. And the purpose of that, of modeling good citizenship, is not to hinder but to facilitate the evangelistic mission of the church and therefore positively benefit our unbelieving neighbors. And that's Paul's argument. So here's the first directive, chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Paul tells uh, the, the Cretan believers, and he tells us, he says, remember the duties of good citizenship. That's his first directive. Remember the duties of good citizenship. Listen to these duties. He, he lists seven civic duties that we have as Christians who are citizens in society. And so listen to verses 1 through 2. He says, remind them. So there it is. Remember, remind them. He says, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient he says, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men or all people. So these seven civic duties that Paul gives to us can be divided into two parts. It's the believer's duties to government authorities, and second, it's the believer's duty to fellow citizens. And these seven civic duties together remind us how we as believers who are representatives of another kingdom, of another society called the kingdom of God, are to conduct ourselves in our civil society that we find ourselves living in here. These seven civic virtues reveals what the Christian's vocation of citizenship looks like, all right? So let's look at the first one this week. There's so much here. But the believer's duty to government. Now, this is a big one, and I know it's going to make you squirm, but just listen to it again. 
Listen to what Paul says. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient. This is the fifth commandment that is given to us in the second table of the law, applied under the new covenant. Let's just remind ourselves, what does God require in the fifth commandment? Listen to question 104 in the Heidelberg Catechism. What does God require in the fifth commandment? And here's the answer. That I show all honor, love, and faithfulness to my mother, to my father and mother, and to all in authority over me. Submit myself with due obedience to all their good instruction and correction, and also bear patiently with their infirmities, their weaknesses, since it is God's will to govern us by their hand. Now, this exhortation makes us squirm, especially in the time that we live, doesn't it? I'm going to come back next week to the application of this in in much more detail because it raises lots of questions in your mind, and I can see you right now with that inquisitive smile (laughs) going, okay, what is he going to say? Um, But what I want you to just know this week is that the Christian submission to governing authorities, Paul says, is a good work that is beneficial to your unbelieving neighbor. Let's just start there, (laughs) okay? Paul begins with obedience to government authorities in this letter because I told you last week, Crete's believers found themselves influenced by the cultural practices of the broader Cretan society, which was very insubordinate. The problem of insubordination, the breaking of the fifth commandment, was a very bad problem in these emerging young church plants in Crete, and it was affecting these churches greatly. Let me give you an example. There were Jews. There were many Jews in Crete. This Jewish population was in continual uproar against the Roman government. Because the Jews of Palestine in the first century were an oppressed minority. They had no voice at any level of government, and they had little legal recourse for injustices. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is why so many of these Jews were in rebellion against Rome, and why some outwardly and some inwardly were rebelling against them. Remember Simon the Zealot in Matthew chapter 10, verse 4. Simon the Zealot was zealous. He would have chopped any Roman government's uh, ruler's head off if he had a chance. And so Paul, what Paul was fearing for these churches in Crete was that they might become embroiled in the political agitation and by that bring the gospel under suspicion. And then we looked at last week, the the Roman civil rulers might uh, view the gospel as containing anti-emperor language. Why? Because the Christians were proclaiming that Jesus is kurios. That is the title that was given to Caesar, kurios, Lord. And so this profession, Jesus is Lord, could have been easily misconstrued in the first century by the Roman government as political disloyalty. And such an action under Roman law back then in the first century would have made a person qualified for the death penalty. 
And so Paul is underscoring the importance of obedience to the Roman government, the Roman state, to dispel any possible misconception that the gospel provides a license for the Cretan churches to rebel or disobey the governing authorities. Now, as I said, Paul's exhortation to obey governing authorities raised some important questions in our minds, particularly for Americans, because we, li- we don't live under a Roman form of government. We have a democratic republic. Unlike countries like Cuba or North Korea or Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan or Iran, Our governing officials in America are not imposed on us from above. We have no Caesar. We have no monarch. We have no king. We have no dictator. We have no caliphate. And so as we look at American democratic republic that we live in, it raises lots of questions here because we're so far removed from this culture that Paul was talking about in first century Crete. Let me just talk about our culture and our government for a little bit here. In America, American citizens are both subjects and rulers. We are the Caesars in this country. We are the kings. We have all the power in this country. Our elected officials are accountable to the citizens. We can pick up the phone and call our elected representatives. We can go to town hall meetings and ask them very hard questions and challenge their decisions. We can write letters and emails to our elected officials who are supposed to be representing our uh, uh, agendas for putting them in the office because we voted for them. They're not Caesars. They're not dictators. They're not monarchs. In a democratic republic, the people rule. The people enact their own laws through their elected representatives. We vote our leaders into office, and we vote our leaders out of office. That's the ultimate power. And so such a system of government makes a Christian citizenship in the United States of America more complicated for those, for instance, who live under a monarchy. Or, for example, when I've been to Cuba, I've been to every square inch of that country. I've seen the entire country inside and out, preached the gospel throughout the entire country. I'll come back to that in a moment. But, but it's, uh, our way of life in government is very different than living under the thumb of a communist regime that crushes its people. And so Christians must not confuse the spiritual work of the gospel with the political arm of the state. Listen, I want you to listen very carefully to me this morning, because I don't want to be misunderstood. But we have to make these distinctions. Christian political activism, if you're a Christian involved in political activism, falls under the vocation of citizenship in the civil kingdom. It does not fall under the vocation of faith in the visible church. It's a huge distinction. Those are two separate vocations. And so it is vital that we don't confuse these two separate callings, these two separate vocations. They're very distinct. Christians in the vocation of a civil citizen of the United States of America living in a democratic republic, we are called to be engaged in government. 
American citizenship, either for believer or unbeliever alike, involves these things, paying taxes, voting, debating issues, grassroots politics, and civic activism. Citizens in a democratic republic are free to criticize officials, and they're free to work to change laws to make them more just in our society. American citizens, both believers or unbelievers, they can mobilize for pro-life causes. They can speak out against and denounce moral and social evils like abortion, infanticide, racism, human slave trafficking, which I've worked with in, in uh, Cambodia, uh, genocide. We can speak out against these things, and we should, and we should condemn them squarely and work as citizens in our vocation to change these things and make a more just society for everybody to live in. Christians, as American citizens, can run for local school boards. They can campaign for state and federal offices, participate in peaceful demonstrations, vote for candidates who best reflect their beliefs. They can form PACs, political action committees. All of these things are simply acting in one's vocation as a citizen in a democratic republic called the United States of America. And listen to this. Even the visible church as an institution, as a place, can have a prophetic voice in denouncing moral evils, slavery, abortion, genocide, racism, sex trafficking, as I had mentioned. These are not political issues. These are moral issues. And the church can speak against these things as a place, not just as a people. But here is the distinction that we have to keep in mind. We must not confuse the spiritual work of the gospel in the visible church with the political arm of the state. Is that clear? Let me try to help you. Christian political activism falls under the vocation of national citizenship in the United States of America. It does not fall under the vocation of faith in the visible church. Let me say it like this. We must not turn the visible church, which is happening right now, into a political action committee. We must not turn the visible church into a political party. The visible church is not a part of the federal government's legislative branch. When the vestry of our church meets together as the leadership of our church, it is not the place where federal laws are debated, made, and passed at Paramount Church. <laughs> right? We cannot confuse the mission of the visible church, which is Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, the Great Commission, the spiritual work of the church, the pure preaching of the gospel, the pure administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. We must not confuse this mission with the political arm of the state. Simply put, the church is not a department of the state. Now, if you'd have been back in the 16th century, where you had a Rastian doctrine, the church was a department of the state. And if you're a heretic, you got you burned at the stake. <laughs> and I am very glad that we don't have a Rastian doctrine anymore. 
But the church is not a department of the state. The church, listen, the visible church is a place where we preach the gospel, administer the sacraments, and enact church discipline for all people, regardless of any political party or nation or race or creed or any of that. Listen, the church, the gospel must not get wrapped up in a flag. It's a huge problem in our country. Believe me, I'm very patriotic. We were waving our American flag, shooting fireworks. I was praising our military. I love the Blue Angels. I've gone every single year for 16 straight years since I moved here to the Blue Angels uh, air show. I love the military. I have lots of families in the military. I'm as patriotic as you're going to get, right? Love it. But we're not going to do that on Sunday morning. That's not the place and purpose for the church. The visible church is a place. The gift, listen very carefully, the gift of the gospel is not the gift of American culture. The visible church is to be known for the gospel, not a political party or a single nation state. Christ's church is an embassy on earth with ambassadors, me, ordained ministers who are ambassadors representing Jesus, the King of Kings, with his message. I'm not an ambassador for the U.S. Department of State. I'm an ambassador for the King of Kings with a gospel message sent to represent as an embassy on earth for this, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is why the visible church is not to hold 4th of July civic ceremonies pawned off as a worship service. It's a confusion of the vocation of citizenship with the vocation of faith. This confusion, if you want to popularize it, this is how I call it. It's called the Star-Spangled Banner Gospel. All right? What is the Star-Spangled Banner Gospel? It is idolatrous civic religion has no place in the visible church. Christians engaged in political activism falls under the vocation of citizenship, not the vocation of, of faith in the visible church. And when you confuse these two separate vocations, it adversely affects the church's evangelistic efforts in gospel mission in the world. Why? Because when Robert Jeffress goes on certain news channels and advertises Celebrate Freedom Sunday... Right and has one political party, and the choir is singing Battle Hymn of the Republic, right? And they're shooting fireworks off in their great big worship center. What message does that send to about, what, 45% of our entire population in America? You're not welcome here, and the gospel's not for you. It destroys the church's mission to unbelievers. And chapter 3, verse 8 of Titus says, when you do this, you're not profiting your neighbor as the church. And so as I mentioned at the beginning of this message, Paul feared that the churches of creed might become embroiled in political agitation and bring the gospel under submission. The problem in the first century church continues to be a problem in the 21st century church. Michael Horton has written a wonderful book, and I would just encourage all of you to spend time reading. It's called The Gospel Commission. 
It's about the mission of the visible church. And listen to what he says. He says, when the church turns to policy prescription, it enters the realm of the properly coercive exercise of legal power. The spiritual sword of the word and spirit become confused with the temporal sword of state, pontificating on matters beyond his expertise and authority. The church actually loses that considerable spiritual authority that it has to address the world in Christ's name as his official embassy. He's exactly right. Paul's concern is that the Cretan believers were in danger of capitulating to the immoral pressures of Cretan's culture and succumbing to these ungodly ethical norms would damage the church's distinctiveness and gospel mission in society. In other words, the church would begin to sound and look just like the world that they're living in, that they've been saved from to be different in. And the same is true in our day as well. It is easy for us to watch certain news channels of a particular persuasion and begin to listen to that rather than to listen to Christ and his gospel to inform us on how we're to view our neighbor. Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called The Purpose of Modeling Good Citizenship, Part 1. More from the series coming up next time. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time.